Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you so much for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? I'm okay. A little tired today. Just been moving a little slowly. We had dinner with my parents. That was really nice. Yeah. Yeah. How are you? Doing good. Uh, Some friends are in town, so I got to see them, and... The weather hasn't been minus 20. Sure. Which is really nice. Yeah, it's only been like, what, minus 5? Yeah-ish. That's uh, Celsius. Celsius, yeah. Yeah. Though I think once you hit 0 and below, then it equals out? Or is no, that only at like minus 20? it's minus, minus 40. Uh, minus, I think minus 40 is the same in both. Okay, well, hopefully we don't get to that. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm very excited for today's episode. Yeah, so I don't know what we're going to get. Oh, I have a feeling of what we're going to get. It's going to be terrible. We'll see. Uh, This week's episode is The Monster of Piedras Blancas uh, from 1959, a movie that we kind of missed and we're cycling back to. Not like really, it's still, you know, 1959, um, but I just had not ever heard of it. Um, Mm -hmm. So we had to cycle back to it. But um, this movie is basically the product of two disgruntled Universal International employees, uh, Jack Keevan and Ivan Berwick. Okay. So Keevan was born in 1912 in Pittsburgh, and he had been a makeup artist going back all the way to The Wizard of Oz in 1939. He'd worked for Universal International all throughout the 1950s on projects like Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, It Came From Outer Space, Abbott and Costello Meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, The Creature from the Black Lagoon, and Monster on the Campus. On Creature from the Black Lagoon, uh, Keevan had sculpted the creature's bodysuit from the neck down based on the designs of creator Millicent Patrick. Okay. Now, like Patrick, Keevan had been sort of the victim of Bud Westmore's jealousy. He had never been, like, credited uh, on any of the films he worked on. Now, to be fair, that was kind of standard in the 1950s. Like, the head of the department would get credited on the movie, and then everyone else is just a like, employee of that department. Um, however, like, if there was special makeup involved or, or kind of special effects or, or things like that, like, typically then someone would get a special credit. Would a bodysuit count as that? I think what was the issue more for Keevan was that like in, you know, press for these movies, mm. in kind of communications about these movies internally or externally, you know, industry magazines, whatever, um, Westmore tended to pretend that like there was no makeup department, that he was like Jack Pierce and just kind of did it all himself. And Keevan basically decided he'd had enough and quit. Irvin Berwick, meanwhile, was born in 1914 in New York and had been a child prodigy concert pianist. Wild. Uh, but ultimately, he found work as a dialogue coach, uh, first at Columbia and then at Universal. In 1958, Universal International was going through a period of um, financial difficulties. In order to drum up cash, for instance, the studio sold its lot to the talent agency MCA that year um, so that MCA could use it for its television production subsidiary and basically also rent it back to Universal. (laughs) Um, And uh, as well... Universal International laid off a significant number of contract staff, uh, including Berwick. So Berwick and Keevan got together to form Vanwick Productions. Sure. uh, To make their own independent movies. Their first production would be a takeoff on Creature from the Black Lagoon, The Monster of Piedras Blancas. So Keevan made the monster suit himself for this, uh, inspired by the Gill Man and also by the discovery of diplovertebron fossils that year. Diplovertebrons are like a kind of one and a half foot long amphibious crocodile from 310 million years ago. So it's exactly Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's just 
you know, he doesn't have Millicent Patrick and he doesn't have the guy who sculpted the headpiece whose name I am blanking on right now. And he doesn't have, I guess, Bud Westmore to yell at him. Uh, so it's just him making the monster suit. Okay, so we're in 1959. Yeah. What year was Creature? 54. Five years. Yeah, they're pushing it. Well, especially because Universal's already done two sequels yeah. to Creature, right? Yeah. So to save time and money, uh, <laughs> Keevan reused the feet from the Metalunum mutant from this island Earth and the hands of the mole people. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, that uh, fantastic Universal movie that we have watched and discovered it was not horror. The uh, suit, the monster suit for this movie would actually later be reused in Flipper's Monster, uh, an episode of the 1960s Flipper TV show. I was just about to ask. Which was directed by Rico Browning, the underwater performer of The Gill Man. (laughs) Do you think that's why they chose this suit? I don't particularly know. I just think it's a fun little full circle kind of detail. That's amazing. Good job for Rico getting into directing. Oh yeah, he's like one of the co-creators of Flipper or something like that. Like I, I think, think I remember that now. Yeah. With all the financial problems that Universal was going through at this time, they ended up giving Van Wyck Productions um, sweetheart deals to rent vehicles and equipment in order to sort of aid the production and make it easier for the film uh, because this movie ended up hiring a lot of the recently laid off Universal staff. So what's a sweetheart deal? That's where you basically like give someone a big, big discount because you like them. Uh, right. Like where it's just like, you know, I'm going to be nice you know, to friends you. Friends and family. Yeah, exactly. Um, so something where they were getting like, you know, way below industry rates on these so that the movie could get made and these people who'd been laid off by the studio could get some work. That helped keep the budget down to $29,000. Oh my God. The film's cast was the usual low-budget mix of old-timers and newcomers. Actors like Les Tremaine, Forrest Lewis, and John Harmon had all been acting since the 1930s, while the 30-year-old actor Don Sullivan uh, would also appear in The Giant Gila Monster in 1959. Will we be watching that? No, it's okay. it's a giant monster movie, so it's been disqualified. Um, that branch of the tree has been pruned. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, 29-year-old Gene Carmen might have been the best-known name in the cast uh, to, like, audiences. And even then, she wasn't much of an actress. She How was, was she known? So she was originally from Arkansas. She ran away from home at age 13 to go to New York and become a star. And once she arrived in New York, she became a burlesque dancer and then a model and then a successful pinup girl. Okay. From there, she found her biggest success as a trick shot golfer, touring country clubs and like county fairs and things uh, with her manager and her husband. Two separate people or same person? That's two separate people. Okay. That's also very interesting because I believe this is still in the era of women not being allowed into country clubs. Yes. Uh, Most country clubs. Anyway, there would be maybe in the 1950s, like women's clubs specifically, Mm -hmm. but yeah. Um, now in the early 1950s, she met a member of the Chicago mafia named Johnny Rosselli, and she dropped her husband to get with him. And then they traveled, uh, to Las to Las Vegas, where they ran a scam at the Desert Inn Casino and Hotel, where they would hustle rich folk into betting against her winning games at the casino golf course because it was like, hey, she's a dumb, like, hot pinup girl bimbo. Like, there's no way that she's going to beat you at golf. And then she would. Yeah. Yeah. It would be like one of those, like... um... Yeah, you're thinking of hustling at pool. Yeah. Yeah, it's that, but on the golf course. Yes. Rosselli also introduced Carmen to Frank Sinatra, who took her away from Las Vegas and over to Hollywood. Ah... Once in Hollywood, she started appearing in sort of um, ethnic, exotic beauty roles in B-movies, at least until she dyed her dark hair platinum blonde, and then she started getting, like, bombshell roles, also in B-movies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, This is one of her few, like, lead parts in this indie 
horror B-movie. Now, this is where things get a little odd. After the death of Marilyn Monroe in 1962, Carmen was contacted once more by Rosselli, and he told her to get out of town. She felt her life was in danger, so she fled to Arizona, changed her name, uh, ditched the blonde look, married, had three kids, and never talked about her former life with anyone until a magazine interview in 2007, a couple months before she died. The role of the monster was played by stuntman Pete Dunne, who had played a mutant in Invaders from Mars, and also appears in this movie as the bartender, Eddie, which I always like that. I always like it, it when the suit actor gets to like be appear out of in the a, suit. Yeah, appear in a different role where you see his face. Um, there's a kid in this movie, Little Jimmy, and Little Jimmy is played by the director's son, Wayne Berwick. So the monster of Piedras Blancas was released on April 11th, 1959, on a double feature with a bizarre movie about criminal smugglers in the Florida Everglades who work with like the native uh, Seminole population there. Um, the movie's called Okefenokee, which I think is a place name in okay. Florida somewhere. Anyways, super weird movie. The Monster of Piedras Blancas received mainly negative reviews from critics, with the consensus being that it looked amateurish. Like, that word amateurish came up a lot in the different reviews. I, I'm shocked and amazed that, uh, that that amateurish would be used for an indie film. But it did make enough money that Van Wyck Productions was able to make three more movies oh. uh, before their partnership was dissolved in 1967. So, well, so like, I mean, over the next six years, they make three more movies. Yeah, but, I mean, like, this movie costs, like, $5, so, of course, <laughs> they made money. Yeah. Um, as you might imagine, uh, no one owns the copyright on this movie anymore, um, so it will be available for folks to watch on our YouTube playlist. Okay. Folks can find that YouTube playlist on our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Monster of Piedras Blancas from 1959, directed by Irvin Berwick. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back, everybody. We watched The Monster of Piedras Blancas, and to pull the curtain back a little, we watched it like five days ago. Yeah. Uh, It's been a little bit of a time just finding the moment to record the second half of this episode. Um, We've had a lot going on here, and the week just kind of got away from us. Uh, If you are a regular listener, you would have been gifted a Spotify playlist uh, from Sarah in lieu of the episode which like i'd been like trying to put together a playlist for halloween uh for like the last month or so and it mm. just never the songs just didn't come together correctly it was really frustrating mm. uh and then it came together for this so hey there you go <laughs> yeah so um thank you everyone for your patience with uh waiting for this episode to come out but yeah it's been just like a really busy week um, there's just been a lot going on. It's just been a lot. So, uh, yeah, we're recording this on a Friday and we watched the movie on a Sunday. So, you know, we aren't as maybe sharp at, with our recollections as we usually are, but I've got all these notes written down. So I'm just <laughs> going to trust past Ben. Yeah. Yeah. Also, uh, it's hard not to remember everything because the movie gives you every step of what happens. Mm. We walk to a general store. We're going to be with the characters through that whole walk. So they need to go back to like the funeral home. We're going to walk all the way back (sighs) with them. So I have a feeling (laughs) that you and I are going to have a difference of opinion on this movie. I had that feeling on Sunday Mm. Um, and I was curious what like a week might do because sometimes 
you'll just decide you're against a movie if you're tired enough. Um, <laughs> but I... That's my secret. I'm always tired. <laughs> I actually liked this movie. Yeah, like it was fine. Um, I think it's got some issues. And I think some of those issues are just like kind of standard indie B movie issues, like the kind of problems that a lot of movies of this ilk have. There are some specific issues to this movie, like the character of the constable, for instance. Um, But I think for an indie horror flick made for very little money, I think this actually turned out pretty good. It does benefit from the, um, we have no money, so we have to shoot on location. Yes. Kind of like benefit. Yeah, the the um, the low budget uncanny valley. Yeah, where if you're if you have a very low budget, you have to do everything for real, so it makes your movie look great. And then if you have like a medium budget, you fake everything. And then if you have a very high budget, you go back to doing everything for real again. But how about I tell the folks at home what the movie is? Yeah, absolutely. So it's the monster of Piedras Blancas, uh, which Piedras Blancas means white stones. Uh, it's also a real place. It's also a real place in California. Um, we see that I don't think they shot on location at this town, though. I'm not sure. Um, I'm pretty sure they did. They did? Oh, cool. I think it's the real town and the real lighthouse. The lighthouse photos they have on their website don't match the lighthouse oh. that we see, so I wasn't sure. It's been... 70 years. That is so very fair. But on the other hand, I will say that if it's not the town and the lighthouse that they're shooting at, it is at least a town and a lighthouse. Like we are definitely on location for this whole movie in real places. So as the film opens, we see that there is a lighthouse keeper named Sturges and he's heading into town. He passes by, uh, you know, a a murder scene or a death scene, I guess, on the beach. Um, There's been uh, two young men who had gone out fishing in their boat and they've washed up on shore. Their heads are pretty much cut off, like nearly headless Nick kind of thing uh, from what people are saying. And their bodies have been drained of blood. And we see that the constable is there and he's, you know, asking questions, whatever. But Sturges heads past that to head to the general store run by a man named Kochek. Um, and he's here to just get his regular groceries. And Kochek's like, mm, I bet it was the monster of Piedras Blancas that killed those boys. Yeah, the, the constable's trying to like make it out to be like a, a boating accident. Um, but boating accidents <laughs> don't typically turn people into blood Pez dispensers. Yeah, it, <laughs> this, this movie starts a little bit like Jaws, you know? Mm, yeah. Um, now, Constable, his name is George Matson. Constable Matson doesn't appreciate Kochek being like, it's the monster. Because he's like, I don't want people panicking. I just want to solve what's going on. Mm-hmm. He brings in Dr. Sam Jorgensen, who confirms that those boys are dead. <laughs> <laughs> but also confirms like how they died. And so the doctor and the constable begin to kind of investigate what's going on. Now, I will say that like Constable Matson has a really bad attitude through this whole movie like he's very like just annoyed by everything and how long things take and just is kind of a jerk um kind of just like a very 1950s patriarchal jerk but in his defense what i will (laughs) say is this it's very clear that like he owns and operates like a I think like a restaurant or a saloon, I guess, in the town. It's also very clear that this is like a very small town. Like this is a single street kind of town. He's clearly the only law enforcement officially. He's like, you know, their elected sheriff or whatever. And because he runs this like restaurant, you can tell that this is, you know, it's like this is a side gig Um, in a lot of small towns in America at this time, like elected civic official was not something that paid you enough to do it as a full-time job. All of which is to say the like extent of his constable duties probably like most of the time consist of like, hey, George got like really fucking drunk and broke a window. Like, can you do something? about You know what I mean? Like, and now he's got like murders on his hands. So I, I can at least, you know, empathize with his like, well, we just got to get this solved and get this over with, you know, <laughs> kind of attitude. 
I got confused by your example because the constable's first name is George. Oh, yeah. So it's like he's arresting himself. <laughs> That's what happens when it's when it's been a week. <laughs> so uh, working at Matson's cafe restaurant saloon is Lucy, who is the daughter of Sturges. Um, and she is, you know, she's a college student home for the summer, making some extra cash. And uh, she has a uh, a lover, <laughs> a boyfriend named Fred, um, who's like an unspecified scientist, but probably marine biologist. Yeah, they never really explain what Fred's deal is. I read like a thing online that called him like a grad student doing research, but the movie definitely doesn't like say that at any point he just talks about like needing to go to the beach for some specimens and then later he looks at things in a microscope and yeah that's about it now i know i've just like listed off a ton of people but these are the only people we need to worry about really more or less yeah now lucy shares to fred how her dad doesn't like people and the people don't really like her dad (laughs) he's kind of a grumpy old man and that she also had kind of a rough childhood after her mom died um she was like sent away to boarding school and she's like not usually back in town so this is kind of new for her as well now we do go like oh they go to the beach and they definitely have sex and then Mm -hmm. like she comes back and like get all that told but i'm gonna skip all that when she comes back home, it's like late at night and she's like, oh, I'm going to be like a free woman and like free spirit because I'm a, a feminist. I mean, no, I don't think. That's... No, she basically says that he her dad asks, what, what are they teaching you at that college? And she's like, oh, freedom, daddy. Yeah, yeah. I was sort of thinking. Fuck you, dad. It, it, on the other hand, like she also establishes that like as a kid, she used to go like out swimming at night all the time because she grew up a lighthouse keeper's daughter and so like thinks that this is a normal thing to do so she goes out swimming at night um skinny dipping yes and we see that like some kind of creature comes over and grabs her panties Mm -hmm. she comes back goes like huh that's weird but doesn't mention it at all when her dad is like were you swimming at night don't be doing that. That's really dangerous. And she's like, oh, dad, you worry too much. Though I did feel like someone was watching me. And her dad, like, freaks out. Because we also see that her dad has been leaving, like, scraps for some kind of creature out on the rocks. That night, Kochek gets attacked and killed at his general store by this creature. Uh, later on in the film, we also see that a little girl who I had canon as being Maria. Um, from be- Frankenstein. From Frankenstein. She's carried in like it's fucking Frankenstein. She gets got. Um, and good old Eddie, the uh, barkeep slash the guy who plays the creature, he gets got. Um, All these people get got the same way. Like it's it's the severed head perfectly severed no blood left mm-hmm. um but yeah the sight of the creature carrying the severed head of the dude who's in the creature suit like that's great honestly yeah. whoever came up with like that gag good on you yeah now i will say that um when we see the two dead kids on the beach mm. in the boat we don't see anything when we learn that Kochek has been attacked and killed in the night, we see, like, shoulders down, lying down, but we don't see any gore or anything. The only first bit of gore that we get is when the monster is suddenly um, snuck up upon because he's in, like, the ice box and the sheriff is here to investigate. And the creature comes out carrying the severed head of Eddie. Uh, and you see full on that severed head. That's also our first like real glimpse of the monster as well. So I think it it's makes, very quick. Though. It's very quick, but it, I think it makes sense as like linking those two things, like having our first big gore and our first real glimpse of the monster, like happening at the same point in terms of like building up, you mm-hmm. know, audience suspense and so on. So the creature like walks out the front door with Eddie's head (laughs) and the sheriff and the doctor like, well, that was weird. They don't go chase him or anything, No, but they do find a scale at this general store. 
the doctor as well as Fred, because marine biologist maybe, they start like studying the scale and they determine that it's related to an extinct species called the diplovertebron, uh, which kind of was like a crocodile-like creature, but it's extinct. And also the scale means that this creature would need to be huge compared to the size of uh, the fossilized diplovertebrons that we've seen. So they're like, hmm, this is weird. I feel like I've seen a movie about this. <laughs> Meanwhile, the constable's like, enough with this egghead shit. Just find him. And it's like, dude, dude, you have multiple crime scenes. Yeah, and like... Don't you, you have to go like notify families? Right, and like, okay, like it's going to take them a while to look at things in a microscope. Like, why are you here breathing Waiting. down their neck like in person? Yeah, like you have other stuff you can be doing. Uh, Anyways. Delegate, my dude. <laughs> Around the same time, Lucy discovers her dad injured on the rocks. Their lighthouse is kind of like on a bit of a cliff. And um, she brings him in and, uh, you know, the sheriff, Fred, the doctor, they're all here as well to kind of make sure he's all right. Once he's alone with Lucy, Sturgis shares that um, he knows that there's a creature out in those caves and discovered it just happenstance. Uh, And so he started like feeding it just like oh this is like a poor creature like let me just feed you some fish then the creature would stop eating fish so he uh went to meat scraps and now it's seemed to have developed a taste for human flesh yeah there's this whole thing about like how at the start of the movie Kochek didn't have his meat scraps because he was like late picking them up or whatever so he just gave them to someone else so the implication is that the creature got hungry because he didn't have his meat scraps and like for whatever reason decided to walk all the way into town and kill Kochek and then was like mmm human blood (laughs) and now you know is is into people um well he killed those two boys Ben but the two boys it was sort of implied was more of like there's a thing near the start of the movie where it said that like they would go fishing around the caves where this creature lives and Sturgis was always like don't don't do that so that's also kind of their fault um (laughs) oh victim blaming i see i do really like the speech that sturgis gets when he explains why he like adopted the creature as a pet where they work it into this idea of like you know his wife died and then he sent lucy away to boarding school and he's just been like so lonely and so like the creature has been his like friend and companion Except the reason he sent Lucy to boarding school is because there was a fucking creature. Yes. Yes. Um, I mean, he knows that it's dangerous for sure. This is why he's been like, don't, don't go down there and everything. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It should have just come clean the whole time, Sturgis, but I still think it's a good speech. Um, so fast forward, blah, blah, blah. Lucy gets attacked and, um, she's being taken to the sea. Uh, her dad, uh, who is like still injured, tries to draw the creature up the lighthouse to kind of rescue Lucy. This is while Fred, the doctor and the sheriff and a whole bunch of other people show up cause they're like going to trap it or some shit. And they see the creature attacking Sturgis up on the lighthouse and Sturgis falls he gets thrown off actually so fred does try to trap the creature in like this rope it doesn't work but eventually the creature falls off the lighthouse and into the sea and that's the end i mean you are skipping over one thing which is that they the way they're able to get the creature to fall off the lighthouse and into the sea is because they discover it can't stand light and I feel like sure, I should. Sure, 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 I, sure. I feel like I should mention that, if only because it means that, like, the way they solve the problem at the end is using the lighthouse light to drive it off. So I feel, you know, like it's Chekhov's lighthouse, right? Like, yeah, it, it, the lighthouse thing becomes relevant, right? So I, I feel like that's worth saying. That's fair. Also, I do have a question for you. Yeah. Uh, because Fred's trap like doesn't work, and then he realizes that light is the thing when like one of the townsfolk like points a flashlight at him or whatever and he has to run up the lighthouse and light the lamp and so on so you're a big scooby-doo fan yeah i love that fred's plan fails do fred's traps ever work um usually not in the way they are intended right because he'll do them and they fail and then uh there might be a case where like 
because Scooby and Shaggy are running around, like they like re trip up the the right. monster, so yeah, it's yeah. still like they technically work. Right. But yeah, definitely Scooby Doo vibes with that. Yeah. Um. But anyway, so that's the end. So I could tell that this was one of those like trying your patience movies for you, like where you were just like, oh, get it over with. Well, it was just when you show me every single step. It's just, it gets very tedious, right? I don't think you can fault me for that. Yeah, this has got the standard B-movie pacing issue of, like, dragging out the running time by driving back and forth between, like, the same two or three locations in the story. And, you know, it's also got sort of the low-budget pacing issue of, like, having your characters not catch the monster when it's clear that they could at that time because you're too early in the running time. And we've seen those things before. Like we've seen the driving back and forth thing many, many times um, in terms of the like, like there's a part where the constable's got a posse and they're all after the creature down at the coves and the creature kind of like surprises one of them and like kills one guy or at least maims him or something. And rather than go after the creature, which is just sort of, you know, like over there, right. Um, they all like stop and crowd around the guy who got injured and take him back into town and let the creature get away when like there's like seven of them. Like they could have, you know, split up and done both of those things, but they don't because we're like, you know, an hour into the hour and a half or whatever it is. I remember that being something that happened with like the werewolf mm-hmm. where there was like multiple hunting party scenes where we just kept going and repeating this like hunting party idea. And in a more like economic movie, like you would do that one time and have that be the time. But when you're having to drag things out because you don't have enough story to fill an hour and a half, this is kind of what happens. So you, you definitely see all of these pacing issues. It is also like absolutely a creature from the black lagoon ripoff. Yeah. That's the other thing that like, even when they were doing their own thing, it was still all just ripping off from, Creature from the Black Lagoon in terms of the creature origin, the way that the posse goes after the creature of like, don't go after him alone, like shoot and we'll come to you. They did that in the uh, Revenge of the Creature. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to say that there's no original thought or creativity here because I, I think they're just like heavily relying on these other things. Um, they have like interesting like ways of connecting the dots, but these are all dots we've seen before. I do think you have to keep in mind that like this movie is essentially the product of a suit maker, a dialogue coach, and a bunch of laid off crewmen coming together to kind of make their own movie. And so I think the fact that they're like using as a template stuff from the movies they've worked on makes sense and the fact that there's not a lot of like originality here i don't fault them a lot for that i think that while this is definitely a ripoff all things considered i don't think it's a bad one yeah there was one review that you mentioned in the context setting of describing this film as amateurish and yes ish but it's definitely not the worst we've seen yeah i actually think that you know i wasn't surprised when i read that review i was like oh yeah that tracks but i actually think like this isn't amateurish it's Mm. got a lot of the same problems that other b movies have but like again i think the reason i keep bringing up that those pacing problems are things we've seen in other b movies is to emphasize that like this movie isn't especially bad Right. It's like, yeah, normal ass fucking B movies do that. Like, I think that this is way less amateurish than like the earliest Roger Corman stuff. Absolutely. I would agree. And I think even like the monster design is comparable to Roger Corman, but better executed in the film. Well, it's for like those early Roger Corman movies. Yeah. like, Like, that's the thing. I think this movie's secret weapon is the fact that it was made by laid off people from universal right like the movie might be bad but it ends up being way better than a lot of other people's first movies because all the people working on it are professionals who have been on yeah it's a not movie their set. first movie exactly um and with like the monster so i think the monster itself is kind of a mixed bag from the neck down 
I think it looks pretty great, which isn't surprising because that was the part of Gilman that Kivan made. He's basically the appearance from the neck down is just exactly the Gilman, but with the Metaluna mutant's feet and the hands of a mole person painted green. But well, I don't know if they were painted green. It's black and white. <laughs> but um, the face, the face is a little problematic. Not in like uh, a Tumblr sense. I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't call it problematic. I would say it's uh, confused. Yeah. Because it's like a hog face, like a warthog. And then the, also the sound effects they use are like that as well, which is very confusing because we explicitly describe this as a crocodile-like creature. Yeah, and I think that shows that Kivan, like, you know, wasn't the designer of Gilman, and he also wasn't the sculptor of the head. That was uh, Chris Mueller Jr. So he's kind of making the head all on its own and i don't think it's poorly made it's just the wrong design for what has been set up yeah um with the sort of like flaring nostrils and the like rodent teeth and even like i think it has like little horns and small eyes (laughs) it looks like a green japanese oni as the monster head to a crocodile man so it's just very incongruous but i don't think like you know again coming back to the roger corman comparison even if the parts of this monster are copied off of other monsters and thus it's not as creative as a paul blaisdell design on like a technical craft level it's much better than like almost any paul blaisdell suit i will say that um the guy who plays the creature Mm. does all right but it feels a little too ape yes he he really gives it like an ape man thing there's not a lot that's very reptilian about it However, coming back to that low-budget Uncanny Valley thing, what I will give that guy credit for is, like, that's really the stuntman in the real monster suit scrambling up the glass side of a real lighthouse tower, which was pretty wild and did impress me. Yeah, for sure. And they got what Gilman and these monsters are all about. They're perverts. Yeah, I did want to talk about this. It steals her panties explicitly. Yes. And and not only does it steal her panties, um, there's a point later in the movie where like when they're trying to kind of CSI Gilman, you know, um, they're trying to figure out like, well, does it see? Does it hear? Like, what are its best senses? And it's explicitly stated that this thing mostly interacts by scent. Yeah. Which is, I think, maybe where they got like or large nostrils kind of idea from. But regardless, yeah, this thing is a fucking pervert. Yeah, and, like, I actually think that what this movie's, like, biggest strength is is that the script knows what kind of movie this is and we aren't pretending we're anything other than what we are. Like, this is a movie that you know, basically is fully honest about like the subtext of all these Gilman monster movies. And, you know, it knows what the audience is here for. The audience is here for babes and blood, right? And it delivers on both of those. Exactly. You've got the monster carrying the severed head, which I will say, I think a severed head explicitly on screen uh, there's also a later shot where they find where the monsters left the head and it's like got a crab crawling on it and stuff. Like, I think that's a new high for gore for us. Like, I don't think we've uh, seen anything no, quite we, that. We've seen stuff like that. We've seen severed heads, but this was really well made. Yeah. like It looked really good. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, a step beyond what I think most people were used to. I don't think you get anything like that in the Gilman movies, for instance. And then, you know, there's plenty of eye candy and sex appeal with Jean Carmen as Lucille. You know, she has sex on the beach with Fred. Like, Yeah, in a uh, uh, Rock from Hudson... To, from Here to Eternity. Yeah. <laughs> Montgomery Clift, I think, is that movie. Um, oh, not Rock Hudson? No. I could have sworn it was Rock Hudson. No, no. Oh, um, I'm getting, getting my, my heartthrobs mixed up. Yes. But yeah, uh, you know, with the the surf coming in on the yeah. beach is what you're talking about. Yeah. And then like, it's one of those things where um, like they strip down to kind of like underwear and like make out on the beach and the surf comes in and then we cut to something else. And when we cut back, she's like naked and wrapped in a blanket kind of thing. She goes skinny dipping. Like we don't, you know, see anything, but we're seeing like way more than 
most movies up to this point, I feel like. Yeah. Like this feels like it's not code approved. The movie is pushing boundaries for sure. Yeah. And I also think that the script is, you know, even with all the pacing issues we've identified, I think the script is surprisingly smart in the way that it is unambitious and it is making excellent use of like what resources and skills the filmmakers had. It's like, okay, I'm good at making monster suits. And like we have, you know, this small town that's available to us and we've got like a lighthouse we can use and a beach. And like, what do we do with this? You know, what kind of actors do we have available to us, etc. And let's not like push too far. Let's do what we can the best way we can. I think in terms of the cast, a few line readings could have maybe benefited from a, a second, second take. take. But in general, I think the more experienced actors in the cast really seem to be trying um, rather than phoning it in. Um, and I think that's really helping uh, sort of carry the movie as the younger actors are struggling a little bit more. But I do think the two younger actors are likable enough like have enough screen presence that they can carry their scenes even if they're a little wooden in their line readings. Now, do you think that the older actors going for it and like not just phoning it in is because they're professionals or because they've seen that these like B-movies can make a billion dollars on a $10 budget? I don't know. Honestly, I feel like that $10 million, I feel like that number keeps going higher every time I say it, but like the major money on a very slim budget, Yes. do you think that's like legitimized horror at all in terms of the profession? I don't think so. I think what we're seeing here in terms of the enthusiasm from the actors might just be the kind of enthusiasm you get from people doing kind of a like, let's get together with our friends and like get the band back together one last time and like you know, these people we know and have worked with many times have all been laid off and like they're making this indie movie together. And if it can be a hit, like maybe that'll save their careers. And you know what I mean? Like that kind of enthusiasm. I also think that, you know, we've mentioned this already, but even if the day for night shooting in this movie is pretty poorly done, shooting on location really benefits it because you buy into the small town you buy into the caves on the beach like those caves aren't styrofoam sets they're real caves the lighthouse is real so you really buy into everything because it's all really there and i think that really helps like shore up the parts of the movie that aren't as good was that on purpose no but i'm (laughs) glad you laughed anyway the script does have some holes in it like why the creature drains blood and how it's making those perfectly clean decapitations when like when we actually see it it's just you know it's got claw fingers with like webbed hands right um so like what is it doing and why and how and also the thing we mentioned about like what the heck fred's deal is but i did think that it was well written in the sense that it never had the characters say dialogue that sounded outright stupid Yes. And we don't get, um, like, exposition retold and retold and retold. Yeah. It's more just like, and now we go here, and then, and then, and then. Yes. But I think that, like, the fact that the movie tries to have this, like, emotional core with, like, Sturgis and his relationship with his daughter, and they have this, like, backstory about the mom and about loneliness and all this kind of stuff, like, shows that, you know, they were like trying something you know they were they were trying to like have a movie with character in it rather than just sort of going through the motions well let's look at ranking so just for context because that's what we do (laughs) um creature from the black lagoon was episode 168 it's currently ranked at number 41 revenge of the creature was um episode 177 It is ranked at number 103, and then The Creature Walks Among Us is episode 188 and ranks at number 81. Mm -hmm. So Revenge is at the bottom of uh, where the Creature from the Black Lagoon movies rank, but I think that's just kind of a good way to have a waypoint. So as a brief reminder of kind of the arc of those Creature movies, the first Creature movie is basically the first half of King Kong, where they're on the Skull Island. The second Creature movie, Revenge of the Creature, is basically the second half of King Kong, where they bring him back to civilization and he gets loose. 
And then Creature Walks Among Us is a story about how they try to make the creature more human and that makes the creature very sad and he kills himself. So I think that's part of why Creature Walks Among Us ended up ranking kind of in the middle there um, because it's got a little bit more going on. Um, I definitely used the Creature movies as my starting point to look at ranking, so I appreciate you giving that context. I felt that with, you know the gore, the sex appeal, the honesty about what the monster wants from Lucille, but more importantly, like a better climax than any of the creature Gilman movies really ever managed. I was looking above Revenge of the Creature for this because the Gilman movies, the first one ends with they shoot the Gilman in the back and he sinks into the swamp. And the second one ends with They shoot the Gill Man in the back and he sinks into the swamp with the exact same footage from the first movie. And then the third movie is he walks into the sea to die, but it's edited really weirdly and poorly such that you're almost like, wait, what happened? Whereas this movie, he climbs a lighthouse and then like tosses a dude off the lighthouse. And then he like falls off when they shine a light on him. And we see like, you know, they clearly like tossed the suit off the side and into the water. Like it's, it's much more action packed, I think. So I liked this better than Revenge of the Creature, but above Revenge of the Creature is It Came From Outer Space, um, which is the, I always think of it as the Beholder movie, but yeah. it's it's the one where they're in the small town and the alien is taking people over and it's a big eye monster in a cave. And I think that I liked that better. Mm-hmm. What do you think? So I used the Creature movies and I determined that I did not like the monster of Piedras Blancas better than the Revenge of the Creature hmm. because monster of Piedras Blancas rips off the creature. Yeah. Right. I feel like there is an element of like giving credit where credit is due. Um, we get to see. Millicent Patrick. Well, yes, <laughs> but we also get to see um, the creature from the Black Lagoon in these underwater shots in the zoo breaking out. Uh, pushing over cars like it's yes it it does rehash stuff from the begin the first film but like I think credit where credit's due so I was looking below 103 and I settled in a short range uh, with La Bruja as my ceiling which is at 115 and that's because that movie is night court (laughs) it has a lot more money behind it a lot more people involved the makeup job for the witch is, um, how, how do I say this without sounding weird? Like I was going to say comparable in terms of skill level, right? Like they are not doing anything new mm. with like showing her as like ugly and like Quasimodo kind of design, but um, they're pulling it off well. And so it's, I, that skill level feels comparable to the creation of the monster in Piedras Blancas. So I made that my ceiling, and then my floor was Dr. Renault's Secret, because one thing that kind of really got me about Dr. Renault's Secret at number 120 is, yeah, they show a dog strung up, but in this movie, we get a full decapitated head. Yeah, so for sure. That, so that's my range. So I'm looking at the area around your range, and I'm kind of wondering if maybe I can pull you up just a little bit. Um, I, I'm willing to like go with you on ranking below Revenge of the Creature um, because yes, while I still think Piedras Blancas has a better climax, it was good of you to remind me of things like the creature like throwing cars around and stuff. And of course, the highlight of the creature movies is always the underwater photography, which there is none of in this film. However, the thing about the Bruja, the witch, is that the story doesn't make any goddamn sense <laughs> um that that movie has a nonsense story above la bruja is ladron de cadaveras which is the first mexican film to mix gothic horror and lucha libre which makes it historically significant not necessarily good um <laughs> above that is on uh lady vampire which was a pretty dope movie as i recall So I'm thinking, what if we put this below Lady Vampire and above the Body Snatchers at the new number 113, which is sort of 10 spots below what I was looking at? 
Yeah, no, I think that's a really good compromise. Right there at 112 is The Undead from Roger Corman. Mm. We were making a lot of Roger Corman comparisons in this movie. How do you feel about that? So the, The Undead is much better than this because it's sort of a few years in. Like, I think if you're comparing this to Corman, you have to be comparing it to like monster from the ocean floor or um beast with a million eyes or like uh it conquered the world like those movies and i think this is better than those but i think by the time he's getting to the undead i think corman's gotten you know better at making real movies cool i just wanted to you know give space you know as i keep saying give credit where credit is due cool i'm happy with this spot Okay, so entering the list at the new number 113, it's The Monster of Piedras Blancas from 1959, directed by Irvin Berwick, who I didn't say this when we were talking about the movie, but I just want to say that dude can't direct a picture to save his life. He is absolutely the (laughs) weakest link in the crew here. Sorry, Irvin. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter, because uh, we're still there, at <laughs> underscore ScreamScene. ScreamScene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, soundcloud and spotify you can subscribe to the show using our rss feed and you can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review on the podcasting app that you use or just by telling a friend about the show we love seeing it when you guys recommend us on social media uh tell your friends about the show at the water cooler at work if those still exist Um, just word of mouth is the best way for our audience to grow If you'd like to help support us financially, you can do that as well. Um, If you'd like to show your support, you can head on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Your support helps go towards things like paying the hosting costs for the podcast, the sort of time it takes to make the episodes. Um, It just really helps us feel like people like what we do. And patrons of all levels get to vote in our regular monthly horror-adjacent bonus episode polls. Um, The bonus episode for November is going to be on Over the Garden Wall, which I'm sure a lot of people will be excited to hear about. And then our poll for December is currently running. Uh, The theme is Tim Burton Movies. And currently, The Nightmare Before Christmas is winning, but uh, it is a little bit of a tight race. Okay. I'm not surprised that Nightmare Before Christmas is, is you know, winning that race just with the timing and everything. What's um coming in, like, second place right now? Ed Wood. Ah, that would also be appropriate for our audience. So if you want to decide uh, what horror-adjacent Tim Burton movie you want us to be watching for December... You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. So Ben, what are we watching next week? Well, next week, Sarah, we are watching a British horror film starring uh, the guy who played Alfred in the Tim Burton Batman movies. Uh, Alan um, Napier? No, that's the Batman 66. Uh, Michael Goh played okay. Alfred in the <laughs> Tim Burton movies. Um, no, it's uh, Horrors of the Black Museum. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That actually sounds kind of cool. Yeah, I am hoping it'll be good. Well, we'll be able to see you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye. Bye.